0: The AWS for Software Companies Podcast, Episode 5 Building a Roadmap for SaaS. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the AWS for Software Companies Podcast, where we talk to executive software leaders about their journeys to the cloud, overcoming obstacles, and the role that Amazon Web Services play in their success. Today, Episode five, we share a roundtable discussion with several industry software leaders who share insights, guidance, and lessons learned from building their software as a service organizations.
1: All right. Good evening or good afternoon, everybody. My name's Adrian DeLuca, and I'm gonna be your facilitator. So I'm not your expert speaker for today because I think we've got far more intelligent and more experienced people than me, but um, just a little bit about myself, as the title says i 'm the Director of Solution Architecture at AWS for our strategic development programs, which doesn 't mean a whole lot, apart from the fact that um, i 've been a long time software guy ex software developer uh, i 've also owned uh, and been a founder before of a number of software companies as well as a saAS company so this is a, a topic that is very near and dear to my heart, and uh, for the last three years living here in the United States, I've been working with our SaaS factory program, which uh, some of you may have heard about. For this session this afternoon, what we wanted to really do was rather than present at you, was to really get a number of industry experts that are actually living and breathing the journey of SaaS. And I slightly changed the title for those of you who were looking at the detail. What we plan to really talk about is not just how to build a SaaS company, which we all know is a long, term, long journey, but how to build a resilient one. And so I'm gonna start with uh, just a couple of observations uh, that I've certainly gone through, uh, particularly over these last six months. Uh, and then I'm going to invite uh, our esteemed panel to come and share their insights. But it was really interesting, one of the things I get to do is not just talk to uh, companies that are building or transitioning to the as a service model, but also I get to talk to analysts and it was really interesting in July, in the middle of summer, when this report came out. I don't know for those of you who follow this, but there was an interesting report that said this could be the first potential recession that the as-a-service industry is going to, to go through. And of course, we all know, you know it's been a weird couple of years, and obviously things like inflation, the war on Ukraine and supply chains has been changing our world it means that we're having to navigate uh, and especially founders of companies in fast growth companies that might have limited capital are are certainly finding it in a different environment than we were just eight or nine months ago. What hasn't helped over the last couple of months are some of the reports like this. You know, We've just seen in the last month uh, weaker earnings reportings from a number of Wall Street companies or companies that are on the stock exchange. We've seen Certainly from the PE and VCs, you know, valuation right down to the tune of even up to 75%. And also a lot of IPOs grinding, you know, to a halt. Uh, You know, this one was a really interesting one. Just, you know, almost 94% of IPOs in the United States are down this year relative to the year before. So not a whole lot of good news. And obviously just these last couple of weeks, you know, we've seen a lot of tech companies announcing, you know, very large layoffs. So if you've got some money at the moment and you want to go and invest in a tech company, you might be asking yourself, hey, I might want to wait a while. But as somebody, who again, who does get to work with software companies of all sizes, I'm not just talking about you know, large enterprises with established install bases, but companies that are also in the startup scene, you know, don't read or don't believe what you, what you read. And I wanted to share, I guess, four key observations that, that I've certainly had um, in the last uh, just the last couple of weeks. You know, first of all, growth is still very healthy. If you look at any as a service or product-led growth company, double-digit growth in terms of acquisition is still very healthy. I mean, just look at some of the numbers that we've just saw from a lot of AWS uh, partners, Datadog just a couple of weeks ago, reported 61% ARR growth. Atlassian, 31% growth. Uh, And AWS is still growing at a pretty healthy clip at 28% when you think they're an $80 billion run rate business. So growth is still very much there. The second observation that I've certainly had is when you think about the IDC report, we were 10, 12 years ago during the last global financial crisis most enterprises especially were buying their software along with hardware. They were refreshing their servers, their storage, their networking equipment, and they were buying operational expenditure, or they were buying uh, CapEx as well as uh, OpEx along with their maintenance contracts. Now, what we do know is in recessions is that operational expenditure is a lot more robust, it's a lot more resilient, and that for a number of reasons. You know, first of all, there's smaller line items each month. But what we've also seen, particularly from product-led growth companies as well as as as-a-service companies, is that many of you, I'm sure, are, are much better at signing up contracts for longer term. And so through those subscription models, through the fact that you're able to monetize over a longer period of time because of that commitment, means that you're going to weather these... Tough, turbulent times at the moment, a lot better than software companies 12 years ago. Another interesting thing, when I was speaking to uh, a a company, and I won't name who they are, but they said, you know, software is actually a deflationary force. I said, what do you mean by a deflationary force? Well, in a high inflation environment, organizations are looking at cutting spend. It's not just about cutting costs, especially when you've got high uh, uh, capital costs they're actually looking to improve productivity. And if you think about the as a service model, the fact that organizations don't have to invest in infrastructure, operate that infrastructure, manage software life cycles, means that this is all capabilities that they used to be able to have to do 12 years ago during the last crisis that are no longer being done today. So as a service companies are a lot more deflationary from that perspective. The last point I also want to talk about is your people. Now we've just come from a really, like we've almost had whiplash and I've seen some reports of like 12 months ago I know I was having trouble hiring the right talent, the right people. Just the proliferation of the specialised skill that was required or some of the international expansion that we were looking to do. Finding people with that experience was very difficult but this is a great opportunity while big tech may be laying off people, it's a great opportunity. And I was speaking to a CEO just last week in New York about this very thing. He said, we are taking this as an opportunity to go and hire the skills that we could not hire 12 years ago. And it's not just about the skills. It's the diversity. Now, it's also true of a report that I read that organisations that have at least one-third women grow faster than the average companies that don't have a third. So it's not just about hiring in different locations, hiring people with different cultural backgrounds, but also being able to have that mix really does show that it propels you as a company as we go through these changes. So these are just some of the observations that I've certainly had and certainly some discussions I would like to have with my panel. So without any further ado, I'm going to start introducing our panellists for this evening. So our first panellist is Ashley Kramer. She is the CMO and CSO and acting CTO. You're a busy girl. I'm busy. (laughs) At GitLab. GitLab. For those of you, I'm sure, uh, who know GitLab, but for those of you who may not, formally established in 2014, an alumni of the Y Combinator Seed Accelerator from the winter of 2015, Uh, but more widely used by a lot of of, uh, DevOps developers They checked in their first code in 2011, isn't that amazing, already 11 years ago. Um, 30 million active users and experiencing 69% year-on-year growth uh, with 150% net retention, so some very interesting numbers. So thank you, Ashley, for joining us today.
2: Thanks for
1: having me. Our next panellist, and again, talking about diversity, I just want to call out the international diversity that we have, is uh, Koichira Okamoto, Chief Executive Officer and President of YAYI. Have I got that right? <laughs> okay. yeah, Yo YAYI. I completely screwed that up. <laughs> this is a company that's been around for even longer, 1978, self-described as the Intuit of Japan, uh, powering a lot of SMB and enterprise companies through uh, multiple technology cycles. You've certainly seen the more we're going to, to, to be talking about. Third panelist... Is Tendu PhD and Chief Technology Officer of Precisely, founded in 1968. Uh, We're going by age by the by the looks <laughs> of it, aren't we? Uh, at least by company, anyway. Precisely are the uh, powering the digital uh, consistency and context of your data. They operate in 99 out of the top 100 Fortune companies. So, really interesting to get your enterprise context, uh, Tendu. Next, we have Matthias Golembeck, member of the board and chief executive, or chief technology officer, I should say, of Exosol, based in Germany. Exosol are a company that is the leader in high-performance in-memory analytics databases, giving organizations the power to transform into data into value faster, easier, and more cost-effective, and I'm gonna press you on that one as well. So thank you. Uh, And finally, we have my esteemed colleague here, Akshay Patel, Principal SaaS Business Development Lead for AWS, currently working with a lot of the C-suite, many of you in SaaS companies. I know you have a really interesting bent towards startups, right? Which we're also going to be talking about, Akshay. Yes. So everybody, let's uh, welcome our uh, our, uh, panelists. I'm gonna sit down. And so I've got a couple of questions that I'm gonna ask each of you. I've got a few specific ones, but I just wanna start with some opening ones. Now, if we just talk talk about the macro environment that I I just described. Finding the balance between growth and uh, profitability is probably more important than ever when we've just looked at some of the valuations that may be going on at the moment. I wanna ask whoever would like to go first, How do you know which levers to pull over the last six months? It must be difficult to know which levers to pull between those two things as a company and balancing your short term and long term value. Does anyone want to maybe open up with some uh, some thoughts here?
3: I can start. Precisely it's a PE back company. Balancing growth and profitability has been our muscle over the years. Uh, We have grown ten times within the last ten years, uh, hyper growth cycle. And uh, when we look at our SaaS business, our SaaS business actually is the fastest growing part of the uh, business as well. It still continues to be the case year over year within the last 12 months. From our perspective, when we were designing our organization and uh, our uh, acquisition strategy, organic growth strategy, and how we are going to offer new capabilities with data integrity in the cloud, as well as how we transition some of our existing capabilities to cloud, we designed with the sustainable uh, operational efficiency in mind. So we wanted to make sure that the growth is not something we just grow and then come back and fix for operational efficiency, fix for profitability. We really did uh, put uh, some uh, metrics in place. Uh, Everything is data-driven in our organization. Uh, It's CEO down, that's how the culture is. So it depends on the organization. For our organization, annual recurring revenue, retention rate, uh, annual contract value, uh, some business impact uh, metrics, as well as metrics on each of the products. What's the expense to revenue ratio? What's the technical contribution margin when you take the R&D and the support costs for each of the products? How do we uh, measure the contribution margin and the profit margin for the SAS has been some of the metrics. So for, it's a easy transition for us because we have been building uh, with this in mind. And for SAS, actually, uh, we are seeing continued growth. And uh, we think that as we did in the COVID uh, analysis of worst case scenario, worst, best case scenario and moderate scenario is gonna help us uh, with the next year as well.
1: Was, is that a muscle that was bought in through the PE, your, your owners? Or is that something that you had to mod, you know, to, to develop even further?
3: I think uh, we were uh, privately owned uh, from day one. So there was a profitability uh, as a metric uh, from day one as well. And PE investors obviously uh, keep that uh, discipline in place. And our C-level executive team, our CEO is very data-driven in the decision-making, so we just kept that culture. And it has actually paid uh, quite uh, good dividends for everyone. It's a big value driver.
1: Excellent. Thank you, Tendu. Matthias, I wanted to go to you because what's interesting about Exosol is you didn't start out as a SaaS or as a service company. You started on-premises. But you've clearly made a bet to not only build your SaaS but keep both of your product lines running. Maybe you can tell us how... Maybe you manage those levers differently between the different product lines.
4: Yeah, so we are kind of lucky in the, in the current crisis that data analytics is, is actually yeah, even being used more than before. Uh, so I think uh, we are uh, not seeing that kind of crisis since yeah. the whole co- corona crisis was, was not really um, a problem. And also now the, the economical crisis, we, we, data analytics is really an important uh, topic. Now we've uh, started the SaaS um, offering this year, so it's a new business, but we are already in the cloud since five years um, on on, on all the clouds. And we are now ramping up the the kind of consumption based uh, SaaS model, which is uh, accelerating our growth on one hand. On the other hand, we have a lot of subscription customers, what we we described before with long term um, relationships and contracts. So it's a a nice balance of having both sides um, in the in the mix
3: yeah
1: and when you think about profitability have you got different horizons for those different products i mean obviously traditional products are a little bit more easier to to maybe because you've been doing it longer but what
4: is the kind of horizon that you look for in terms of profitability with your SaaS products so we as a company we are public so we are having the same valuation problem right now right so it's a little bit more complex than with uh, privately uh, owned Um, So we we have to go into that uh, route. We are planning to go profitable next year. And uh, we have a very nice license model, which is not just consumption, but we also offer a uh, volume-based model for customers, which is a great mix of uh, growing rapidly, but also uh, growing steadily because data is growing every year. Uh, Data applications are growing every year. So um, we have that kind of, yeah, Growth trajectory over the next couple of years, um, SaaS is of course something where we uh, grow quicker by the land and expand model. I think that is, uh, you know, shortening the sell cycle and then growing the consumption faster.
1: Absolutely, thank you, so actually I want to go to you because um, you're a very different company. You've had to build a company on open source, you know, unlike selling enterprises. But you know, maybe you can share with us how. You've been successful in enterprises because it's increasingly a bigger portion of where your revenue is coming from. You know, w- what do you see customers valuing most, of, especially enterprise customers, about your product?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. As you mentioned, we started as a company in 2011 on this open source project. That was founder number one, Dimitri. And then founder number two, who is our current CEO and co-founder, Cid C Brandy, um, found this open source project and said, this should probably be something that we host. And that is where we became also a SaaS company with GitLab.com. And so you saw the typical journey where it was more product-led growth, more people discovering, having people contribute in us hosting for them in a multi-tenant way. Now, as you mentioned, um, fun fact, 10 years to the day of our first code check-in, we went public. And so that's kind of a fun story to tell and we went public because we secure enterprise code as well. And so what that journey's looked like is some can use multi-tenant SaaS, that's great, some want to self-manage. And we're actually announcing this week in partnership with AWS that single tenancy is now a thing because enterprises really need that reliability disaster recovery going into their own region and you can only do so much as a multi-tenant SaaS um, product only and so you know, what I think customers value the most and what differentiates us from some of our competitors in the DevSecOps uh, landscape is that we have all of these different deployment options. And um, I'm pretty excited to uh, see where we can go with, it'll be called GitLab Dedicated, and it'll be solely uh, in partnership with AWS as our cloud partner. So
1: you're really investing in new products as, as this is all going along. All the time. Yeah. So are you are you finding a, a, a difference in your go-to-market model, or is that still largely the same?
2: It's funny. We were just talking about this before we came up. Um, you know, it, it is, as chief marketing officer, it is a unique challenge in that we have this product-led growth motion, and that is great, and that's targeting these developer champions that find it, bring it in for their team. They can use a credit card. Enterprises, we like to go in, and we'll have a lot of the conversations this week uh, with, with our AWS counterparts to go in and do what we call a value stream benchmark, understand where they are in their DevSecOps journey and figure out how in a big way we can help them with cloud migration, app modernization. And so um, if any of you are marketers out there, you can understand my challenge in trying to drive both of these motions, but both are critically important to our company. And so it's it's a great opportunity for us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Ashley. Kay, I, I wanna bring you in here because for those of us who live here in the United States, we're used to, uh, I guess, a lot more volatility when it comes to, to these sorts of times. You know, the highest are highs and sometimes the lowest are lows. But, you know, uh, as someone who also worked in Japan quite quite a bit of time in my previous life, the Japanese economy is is, is quite unique in the sense that it's been operating in a, in a low growth but more consistent environment for, for quite a few decades. Maybe you can share with us how, how, to, how do Japanese companies think during these times around balancing you know, growth and profitability.
5: Yeah. So you talk about recession, uh, but in Japan, we've been under recession for the past 30 years or so. <laughs> so it's nothing new for us. And funny thing is that, you know, um, so arriving in Las Vegas and having lunch, you know, with $20, you know, if you like to have decent meal, decent lunch, you know, it's, it, $20 is not enough. But in Japan, um, maybe $5 would be, you know, decent, $10, great lunch. <laughs> so, you know, if you ever have a chance to come to Japan, it's the right timing, you know? <laughs> it's a really great timing.
1: Okay, I just bought a $9 coffee in California a couple <laughs> of weeks ago, so I got uh, a little bit. Is, you know,
5: from my point of view, it's crazy. But, you know, the problem is, you know, we cannot keep you know, shrinking our economy. That's you right. know, the problem is, you know, AWS in Japan charges in US dollars. So at some point we cannot pay to AWS because it's in US dollars Mm -hmm. so we have to revive our economy but the problem is that the as a society as well as the customers are pretty conservative Um, but you know it's it's about um, timing for us to change uh, so that you know we can be one of the you know the first tier countries in the world
1: absolutely maybe you can share a little bit about your journey as a company you had to make some brave moves, I would, I would sure. call them, over, the, over that period of time, especially when, when you really decided to, to pivot to SaaS. And you've got a great story. I really want you to tell the story about how you kind of rallied your, your developers. Tell us a little bit about that decision, that moment that you had to really pivot
5: the company in a, a significantly different direction. Sure. You know, as a Japanese company, you know, by nature, we are a conservative company, but also we are a technology company. So we are a little bit more progressive than average, I think. Uh, So we started our uh, cloud search journey uh, in early 2010s. And we are at this moment in the third phase of our journey. The first phase was experimental. So it was the agile and silver lights. So you can guess what timing was that, you know, silver lights, you know, you cannot see it anymore. Um, but the second phase, uh, again, Azure and HTML5, and, but we produce this uh, you know, solution for the casual users. So at this moment, we have basically desktop applications for the you know, heavy users or long time users, and the, the cloud applications for the casual first time users. But we believe that it's about time to move into the third phase, uh, which is to offer everything on the cloud. And in doing so, you know the customers are conservative, so we have to provide great product, not just good product. At this moment, we have good product, but it's not great. You have to you know, produce great product, and in producing great product, we have to have capable and confident engineers. And in doing so, what we did is, well, yeah, as I mentioned, it's it's a pretty interesting uh, thing we did is that the we uh, did a vote among our engineers. Uh, one of them is over there. Uh, we did the votes, you know, which platform we will actually use for our future. So we've been on Azure or, or the desktop Microsoft for a long, long time, and then Azure. And then, so it, it's easy to imagine that people say, Azure, but the result was different. It was pretty much anon- anonymously AWS. It was like 95%. It just that uh, uh, I guess the engineers saw the future in AWS, and if that's engineers want uh, AWS,
1: it's my role to make it happen. So really empowering your engineering team uh, to make that pretty brave choice. Maybe let's talk up a few levels there. You you have other business counterparts that you had to explain this to,
5: how did did that go? Yeah, so um, we still have desktop applications that makes us um, still profitable, very profitable. Uh, so, uh, which makes us resilient to this environment. So that, you know, you can call it a cash cow. So we are able to utilize that cash cow to move farther into the third generation.
1: Excellent, thank you, Kay. So actually, we've got a very international panel here, obviously we've got all the major regions, but you know, one of the things that you get, get to do is, is really work with a lot of different countries around the world, you know, not just here in the U.S. You know, what sort of strategies are you seeing through our SaaS factory engagements you know, during during this time? I, th-
6: I think it's one of the best jobs I've had. Um, so if you're looking for a position, definitely a team to join. Are we hiring at the moment? <laughs> you know, we're, well, Craig's over there, so you can go talk to him. But, but, but the reason I say that is because I get to work with early stage startups in APJ who are pre-seed all the way to large companies like IBM and Carrier. One of the most in fact, probably in almost every conversation, the one thing I always talk about is pricing and packaging. And it's, 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 it's an interesting conversation starter because it starts with pricing packaging, but it's really about how SaaS companies, regardless of their size, are transforming the way they go to market and going after growth. So again, there are a lot of, constant, lot of, lot of work and a lot of conversations around growth. And that leads to the next uh, big topic, which is architecture. We see a lot of them reinvesting in the way they build architecture. So Ashley, you spoke of going from multi-tenancy to siloed. So we see a lot of that kind of uh, conversions. We see a lot of uh, traditional companies moving from traditional models on-prem to cloud. But it's growth, it's about pricing packaging, it's about top line. And then it gets even more interesting because we end up talking about metrics. And there's so much emphasis on metrics and how they're building the organization. In fact, even restructuring the organization to be able to deliver the best customer experiences. Super exciting to see the repeated disruption even within mature SaaS companies or born in the cloud SaaS companies.
1: So thank you for queuing up my next question. It's not like we scripted this, right? So,
6: <laughs> but
1: I mean, you're right. I mean, SaaS companies are sticklers for metrics. And you know, certainly if you've been running a SaaS company for any period of time, things like customer acquisition cost lifetime value but there's some interesting new metrics we're seeing certain companies starting to use during these times maybe can you talk to us a bit more deeper about some of the ones that you're seeing discussed a lot more yeah. you know with with customers and partners
6: so i think churn book to bill are some of the common ones but because of the economy the two that keep on popping up more often is net dollar retention or net revenue retention and the rule of 40. So net revenue retention being new revenue growth or expansion plus churn and contraction over a period of time. So a lot of, when you you talk about growth, uh, that's definitely one of the metrics I have a lot of conversations. But immediately after that is the rule of 40, which is how do you grow top line and bottom line revenue at 40% or more? Depending on who's asking, that conversation ch- changes drastically. So the first question I always ask is, great metrics, but who's asking? Is it your investors? Is it your board? Is it the CFO? Is it the product officer? Because the, under- the underlying value of those metrics is the execution of how you're driving those metrics to profitability or top line growth at double digits like you spoke about Datadog and others. So two, probably two, two of the most common ones I, I run into these days.
1: Yeah. So I might open up to others. Is there any other favorite metrics or, or metrics that you've been looking at as you've been, you know, seeing the, the not just the growth but potentially profitability levers in your business?
5: Yeah. I actually talked about Rule Forty, and the interesting thing is that so as I mentioned we have two business lines: a desktop as well as cloud. Desktop, the growth rate is five six percent. It's stable. <laughs> uh, it it doesn't shrink, uh, but it doesn't grow as much. Right but it's very profitable. Uh, profit margin, more than 30%, close to 40%. So still, you know, it meets the rule of 40. And on the cloud side, the growth rate is like 30, 40%. It's not making that much money, uh, but you know, it's, again, it, it meets you know, rule of 40 in a different way. Yeah. And we are combining these two so that we can move forward to the future. Excellent, thank you.
3: I think one of the things uh is uh, important what Akshay was saying. When we look at rule of 40, ultimately what it says is that take your profitability and growth rate, and you want the sum of that to be higher than 40. So if you are growing your SaaS business 50% or higher, maybe you can choose to afford some loss. If you are growing with 20%, you probably have uh, ambition to have some 20 percent profitability. So one thing that uh, allowed precisely uh, to have uh, good capital allocation is to not only look at this but also think about where do we want to be in the next 12 months and 24 months. Because we have a a very rich portfolio of data integrity products. Uh, We basically support our customers with trusted data, with data integration, data quality and governance, location intelligence, and also data enrichment products. So we support that data journey. And actually earlier this year, we launched the whole capabilities as a data integrity suite in the Amazon Cloud, partnering with Amazon. So when we look at the portfolio with the on-prem products and the cloud products, we have different maturity and uh, how to mature versus emerging uh, growth products and we set targets where do we want to be in the next 12 months so that's kind of an important part of that that's one. Second, we think that this cycle of economic downturn is going to be somewhat similar to COVID and many of the companies created a little bit of resiliency during COVID and probably many of you have become, like ourselves, more and more data-driven. right? We had, now, actually, it's more important than ever to have trusted data, to have data-driven decisions, to access data faster, to make sure that the data is accurate to drive those business decisions. So with data growing at that speed, the cloud adoption is going to grow, too, because cloud actually is creating that elasticity with the workloads, with the data volumes, uh, and also automation. Uh, with the ability of uh, having AI, ML tools, advanced analytics tools in the cloud, it's increasing the automation. So that's, uh, that growth is expected. I think this economic downturn is going to be more like COVID downturn, and we will see growth with data, end-to-end data journey, more importance on trusted delivery of data as well as cloud adoption.
1: Yeah, I've heard that before too. I was actually having a discussion just about a week ago with a, uh, saying, well, you know, this actually presents a great opportunity for us to maybe slow down on some of the feature development and just go and harden a lot more of our automation reporting, you know, to give ourselves a lot more telemetry. So so that's really interesting. You know, I think as, uh, as a company that also, um, I would say it's fair fair to say, right? Akshay, we we we, we uh, obsess over over data. Um, it's also running experimentation, right, with your customers. Certainly, you know, playing with different or or modifying, not playing, but modifying your different pricing plans for your different cohorts of users is another thing I can uh, I'm seeing companies uh, also using that data to to fine tune. Also, for those that are exposed to FX changes, which are fluctuating quite severely in some parts, right? That's also another opportunity to, to, to drive longer commitment periods in return for a shorter term uh, you know, discount or repackaging of that. Matisse, I wanted to go back to you because the, you and I had this interesting discussion because I asked you the question, what surprises did you have? What, was, what, what were you probably unprepared for when you were you know, when releasing your SaaS products? And you told me culture and go-to-market very specifically. Can you elaborate a bit more on that?
4: Yeah, I think um, Ashley mentioned that before, right? Um, it's a different go-to-market motion. It's, you have to yeah, convince customers to try it out. You have to convince customers to onboard. You have to create a really good uh, onboarding experience, trial experience. And, and then from there, you have to work on the growth. So how do you work? Making customers successful. So the whole customer success management is, uh, I think, very important. Um, so allowing them to then grow, using the product more, and finally getting more successful on their own. So creating the heroes. I think AWS does a great job in exe- exactly doing that, working with the partners and helping us
0: uh, becoming
4: success- uh, successful. So it is that kind of different go-to-market methodology. And it's, it's a lot about culture. It's not, a, not just about technology pricing and so on. It's, it's really about culture. Yeah, absolutely.
3: I, I think uh, Matthias does a, uh, has a very good point. Uh, we have experienced uh, similar uh, challenges and I think every organization is probably going through uh, similar challenges. People think that cloud is a technology transformation and it is not. Hadoop was a technology transformation. However, cloud is really a business transformation. You have to think about pricing different. You have to have your sales organization uh, behave in a different way. Your customer onboarding, like you mentioned, is different. So it's not just building the products and deployment in the cloud or in hybrid environments. It's how uh, you organizationally transform yourself To take that uh, to market is a big uh, challenge, often. And AWS has great resources. In in fact, they helped us, for example, with a lot of training, training both technically, uh, upskilling, learning assessments, migration uh, map. Uh, When we do acquire a company, every time we acquire a company, they come with uh, some on-prem and cloud products. So there's a lot of consultation or migration that happens with that as well. So that that has been really a, a good partnership as well. Yeah.
2: It's a there's a there's a developer cultural difference too, um, if you think about it. Because think about an on-prem product, you test it. Customers are slow to upgrade. They wait. They have their own sandbox. They test them on their own stuff. When you're dealing with SaaS, it's going out. They're using it. They're getting it live. You introduce bugs. You're rolling back. And so it's it's this constant. Um, it, it's this constant balance of what, what we call—we um, like boring solutions at GitLab. We like to get it out. It's actually publicly in our handbook. I'm not giving you any secrets. Get the boring solution out and then iterate. Keep iterating. There's no time for waterfall anymore. Get it out there. But it's a much different um, developer cultural mindset as well.
1: So you just touched on the keyword here. To to be successful as a SaaS company, especially if you've come from a traditional company, it does require a different mindset at all levels. You know, it's not just a, as I think you said, it's not a technology transformation, it's a business transformation. It transforms processes, sales, marketing, and so forth. I'd like to ask you all and consider what sort of, when we think about the fact that we've just come from an environment where, you know, striving for talent was very difficult, attracting talent can be difficult, especially in such a competitive environment. I'd like for all of you to maybe share with us, what are some of the attributes that you look for? It's not just about getting the smartest developer, right? But what sort of attributes do you now start to look for as you're building out your companies? Who wants to kick us off with that?
2: I can start because we're a, we're a values-based um, culture and company and have been since the beginning of time. So it spells credit, collaboration, results, efficiency diversity inclusion belonging, iteration and transparency. And those are all critically important if you think about um, the type of talent we want to bring in. Sure, you can give them a te- you can give a developer some, some sort of you know, test coding challenge and figure out if they're good developers or not but it's really those values that will show us if they're gonna be a good fit for the company. As an open core now, not source, but an open core company, transparency is critical to us. So if you like to protect your work or you're not much of a collaborator, it's probably not for you. Mm-hmm. And so from that perspective, that's what we look for at GitLab on top of core hard skill sets, which we can easily discover in a test. Even for executives, I, I could tell 50% of my interview process was, was figuring out who I was as a person and how I would be and how I would enter the company to make sure it was a fit.
1: And values are a lot more long-term, a lot more durable, right? That's so right. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you.
5: Anyone else? Yeah. Um, being a Japanese company, uh, I would say my company is uh, very hardworking, very diligent, and uh, very perfect- Like your train's
1: very reliable.
5: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <Unlike> exactly. <laughs> so everything has to be perfect, you know? Um, you expect to be in Osaka at this point, at this time, then you'll be there. You know, th- that's a different story when you, know, you try to come to Las Vegas. <laughs> but anyway, um, you know, we, we like to keep some of them, some of those traits, but at the same time, we have to change some of them. And uh, one thing that we have to change is that, you know, we, we cannot be, try to be perfect, at least from the beginning. And uh, we have to accept the failure. You know, uh, failure as a result of, uh, you know, challenge, you know, uh, that should be praised. And uh, you mentioned that the, you know, not, not just engineers, but everybody in the organization has to change. That including me. You know, I am a perfectionist and I expect everybody within my company to be perfect. But I, I do believe that I have to change, you know, myself. Absolutely. I will
3: focus on the resilience. You you had the title Building a Resilient Roadmap. So diversity brings resilience, right? We are in this uh, pivoting point in the skills, probably. We we help our customers with mainframe modernization to cloud. Many of our customers, 99 of Fortune 100 and 100, we serve in over 100 countries, 12,000 customers, they are doing modernization because mainframe skills are in shortage, retiring, and the cloud skills are in shortage because we don't have enough uh, graduates. Data analysts, data scientist skills are in shortage. However, we want to hire a diverse set of people. So diversity, inclusion, equity becomes really important as a value driver for the organization. It is not a checkbox. There are several studies with McKinsey over five years, they have been studying 40,000 plus employees and many companies, how the trend impacts to the data points that you provided, uh, having diversity in the executive team, having in the leadership to the profitable of of the companies, to the success and the growth of the company, diverse set of employees. Uh, and uh, also the ESG initiatives with the environmental and social and governance is going to be a big driver for uh, creating an opportunity for diversity because we have to really pay attention to sustainable growth and we have to pay attention to the resilience of the business and these are going to become critical value drivers. So I think uh, from a hiring perspective, this creates an opportunity for us because we can tap into a rich set of uh, uh, people from diverse backgrounds and also uh, do some good. Because I think, if anything, the pandemic taught us, we care about personal skills in our leadership. It's not having just technical skills, especially in the leadership, people's skills are becoming very important. So let's focus on leading with empathy, bringing diverse uh, groups and perspectives so we can grow faster. That's, that's I think, our focus moving forward.
1: Yeah, so I actually want to refer to a study. This is a Deloitte study, a uh, recent one. 71% of global and private companies have moved beyond compliance to increase diversity inclusion. You know, a lot of companies have got targets around these sorts of things. But, you know, they're finding that DEI is... Is in a company is actually proving to make better decision-making inside of a company. Increased retention, higher workplace engagement. Maybe I can ask you all, you know, how are you seeing diversity playing out in in your particular business? You know, whether it be hiring talent, whether it be upskilling, whether it be internationalising, because you're all international businesses, but maybe you can share some of the, the specific initiatives that you're doing to drive Maybe some of those things around better decision-making and and retention and engagement.
3: So for us, uh, first of all, because uh, we are a global company, uh, we have 2,500 people uh, and uh, we have offices everywhere in Europe, in India, Australia, many offices uh, in uh, the U.S., U.K. So we have a diverse uh, talent. Some of the initiatives that uh, we focus, I grew up as a woman in technology. That's what I know, right? I represent that. So I know the challenges with being a woman in technology. So I became a champion of that in my organization with the support from uh, uh, all of the executives. And I co-founded with uh, another leader from sales, Precisely Women in Technology program. And partnering with HR, actually, we monitored the hiring pipeline uh, the conversion rates, it's like a sales pipeline, conversion rates from the applicants, how diverse is the background of the people, and uh, also the attrition, voluntary or non-voluntary attrition. And then we put specific programs, about six programs with executive shadowing, our CEO, CEO, uh, CRO, CMO, all of them actually are open, so you can actually have a day spend with them, learn from their experiences. Uh, we have uh, speakers, coming from outside, sharing their experiences. So we have both men and women championing. This is just an example because I grew up as a woman in technology. Every underrepresented group needs a champion and sponsor and role models, not necessarily just at the C-level, across the organization to drive that change. For us, it worked really well because it creates openness, which is our values. It uh, brings those different uh, fresh perspectives and uh, it creates actually a more innovative environment. And it also helps with our talent acquisition as well as customer acquisition because our customers are diverse too. Uh, it, it's really worked well from a customer serving our customers and uh, attracting more talent.
1: So diversity breeds more d- diversity naturally by, by investing in it. Correct. Right
2: we have some similar things at GitLab. We have team member resource groups and we bring speakers in and each member of the executive team sponsors one of them. Um and and that all works really great. But we also um the CEO gives OKRs at his level and at each of our levels around this diversity hiring and uh, it's I I was we check in on them monthly and I was bragging a few months ago about how my leadership team's 50/50 female yeah. to male um not realizing that they're all located in the United States. So that is actually not very diverse. And so as a woman in technology um, and growing up through the ranks, that's always top of mind to me, but I I like to keep in mind that, and I did um, just start opening another role to look for somebody with more global experience because that knowledge really helps as well. And so I, I like to I like to try to expand out to think of the global diversity too, which you all did a nice job with the panel today. Yeah,
1: thank Fine. you for mentioning that. I, I'm one of the beneficiaries of that. You know, uh, one thing I've really enjoyed at Amazon is the rotations that we have, and mm. giving people like myself that in little old Australia, which is very far away, to come and work in a market like this. So that cultural diversity is really important, and I would argue it's even more important as a SaaS company because. You know, I, I remember a CEO once told me SaaS companies are global from day one, mm-hmm. right? And if you want to address, you know, and, and, and truly be successful as a global company, you've got to start building cultural diversity from day one as well. So actually, well, maybe if you could maybe share, because I know we've had some discussions about this.
6: Yeah, actually, I wanted to double click on that, because in a very similar conversation in another panel, I was kind of being pushed a little bit more to explain, but why does it really matter? So if you think about SaaS and all the conversations, the examples you gave, it's about the customer experience, right? And so the diversity that you invest in your organization through all these different programs is really all about how do you deliver that those different experiences to your customers. And so it's after a little while, the EQ part of your employees start becoming important, which reflect in your products. It reflects in the way you engage with your customers. So it's product, your operational experiences. And that's how it really translates to value for your, your company, but also for your customers' outcomes. So it, it was, it was a, so I do agree with you. In SaaS, it matters even more.
3: Actually, it reminded me of something. So we talked about one, basically uh, driving um, decisions, business decisions, automating, accelerating business, business decisions through data and uh, SaaS. And uh, we talked about how automation actually can create efficiencies because we want to rely on automation for uh, reducing total cost of ownership uh, and uh, um, using AI machine learning for recommendations. And uh, what actually reminded me is the third piece there. With diversity, we actually also help reduce the bias in those models that we rely on making decisions. So it becomes even more important with the automation and the use of AI and ML that uh, we are seeing uh, and accelerating, actually.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now, another question I've got as we start to round out here, you know, one of the tensions that that we see is especially, you know, it is a different mindset, it's a different culture. Some companies will tend to say, well, we, we, we've we got to hire from outside. But I, I'd I'd love to ask all of you, How do you think about reskilling? Because especially in an environment where it's been tough to necessarily get the experience, the skill, or even the diversity that you're looking for, because diversity isn't just gender, it's also the the experiential sides. But maybe uh, who would like to share maybe some of the initiatives that you're
5: taking to reskill your existing forces? We're working towards this new delivery model. Yeah, so I would say, you know, we have to have a mix. Uh, but you know existing engineers, uh, you know being reskilled, as well as of course we like to have uh, capable you know engineers, you know cloud native engineers from outside. So it's going to be a mix. And um, they used to say, um, well, at least in Japan, it is often said that the engineers hit the technological ceiling at the age of thirty or forty, <laughs> so that they don't. You know, evolve anymore. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm over the hill. <laughs> yeah, um, but you know, I don't think that's 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 the case. And uh, you know, I, I mentioned about the vote we had, and uh, you know, we have engineers at the age of 50, 55, you know, close to 60, and you know, all of them are very much willing to learn, and and they w- voted for for the AWS, and the AWS has been. Offering us, uh, you know, plenty of uh, training courses, and our engineers taking those courses and actually, you know, producing, you know, good, great—not just good, but the great uh, product at this moment. So you, so you know, don't have to always do it yourself. <laughs> yeah, actually, I started. Well, you know, you know, I'm an engineer by nature, um, but the I quit um, at the age of thirty or something. Uh, to become a management consultant. But the, I resumed coding like uh, five years ago. It's just fun, just so much fun.
4: Thank you, Any, anyone else? I think it, it comes back to the, the learning, the, the curiosity of people and the selection process. I think yeah. it's not just, you know, you reskill a, a bunch of people, it's, all, it's already the selection process, which picks people who want to constantly learn and evolve. So because the the technology world, but also the business world is is transforming uh, faster and faster every year. So selecting people and selecting diverse people, selecting people who have very diverse thinking and characters. So the whole EQ thing is I think super important because if you find people who are smart, passionate, but also have the the willingness to, to work as a team, to work transparent to your point, I think then you will find people who want to find the best solutions for the problems and then they will find the right upskilling training courses automatically. They will ask you to get trained. Right?
1: Yeah, two important attributes, you know, you hire for curiosity. It's something that you can, you can evaluate during that, but also putting them into an environment where they can challenge one another, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
2: And from my perspective, we, we, we do we do similar things. We bring outside you know talent in for newer concepts. We partner with AWS to, to help us you know get get the skill set and the knowledge that we need. But if you think about your current talent, you have this really great talent. Sometimes engineers get bored, but you, they're great and they understand your company and they understand the mechanics of your code base. So what we do in this case is we pair them up. We pair them up, we do knowledge share, and then they can move from team to team. And we retain that great talent um, because starting a, attrition is expensive and bringing on new talent is expensive. And so I think on top of the, the first two, really doing this sort of paired partnership so they can move from team to team has been really beneficial for us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's,
6: a, there's something else I wanted to add because we talk about upskilling. The other thing I've seen happen more and more now is breaking the natural tension between the engineering technology people and the business people. What I'm seeing is a lot of the upskilling, cross-skilling of business into technology, technology into business, is also becoming very important. So if you think about product-led growth as an example, um, it's important for engineering to think like growth engineers and product teams to think like growth product management and work closely with marketing and work closely with sales and vice versa. You know, sales teams actually understanding the technology a little bit more, or marketing understand how to position that technology. So there's a lot of business technology uh, hybrids popping up everywhere as well. So that's the other one I wanted to
2: share. We're clearly in core believer of that at GitLab, our chief marketing officer, me, is now our CTO, me. Yes. What are you going to do
1: next week?
2: <laughs> Not sleep. <laughs> but, um, but if you, you know, I, I thought that it would be kind of awkward at first when all of these engineers found out that their marketing officer, I do have a technical background, yeah. is becoming their acting CTO for a while. But what's been really interesting is I'm bringing them all this business context. Yeah. And I'm bringing yeah. back the marketing team because, by the way, we use GitLab to deliver GitLab's so I'm bringing the marketing team, all of these ideas around that so that I couldn't agree with that more. That cross-pollination has, has really paid off in yeah. the last few months since I've done all of the roles. Yeah.
3: yeah. I want to just add something uh, first, I think this kind of transformation with the business transformation, cloud transformation, and whatever is the next challenge that we are going to face with, you need some seed teams, which has the skills that you can really have that cross-pollination. So Amazon, uh, for example, helped us with a learning assessment uh, with one of our groups to uh, develop a path forward. How are we going to upskill for cloud security, for fundamentals, etc. And uh, have a development plan for this group of uh, people. So bringing outside talent experience is important for that C team. And then training the people who are in the company who are curious, because that's how we hire, who are open to learning so they can actually develop themselves in addition to bringing uh, something valuable into market. And the third piece uh, to Ashley's very critical uh, point, innovation is about solving a business problem. The closer we bring the engineers and the technologists to the business problem, to the customers, to understand what the customer challenge is, to understand what that next challenge is gonna be, how they are using versus how they are not using the products, really open up their kind of aperture and uh, perspective. They start seeing the business impact and the value of what they are creating. That's another area that uh, I think is important.
1: Yeah, certainly, I remember my time when I had my SaaS company, you know, it, you know, just by virtue of the fact that you're not maintaining software anymore, you're not maintaining revenue, everybody needs to have that growth mindset. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's it's about how you drive that next piece of adoption, that next, uh, you know, capability that helps your customers value and, and keep building that value chain. So, excellent. All right, final question. So, and this was actually inspired by you, Kay. So, I'm going to, you know, it's your fault, this last question. But you know you're all executives in fast moving companies so and you said it was equally important to invest in yourself so I'm going to ask each of you what are you doing to personally invest in or, or to invest in your personal growth so we're going to start from from that side actually yeah
6: now for those who know me I have a big stack of books and podcasts uh, next to my bed so there's a
1: great product called a kindle that you might yes. want to consider
6: yeah, i got that as well so sometimes a good old book does wonders um, so definitely in my books and uh, podcasts
4: uh, i do believe in the networking effect so i'm a, a part of our cto network in in europe which consists about i don't know 600 people and we have a selection we have constant kind of food for thought because people ask questions respond we are meeting each other physically regularly so I think that is uh, an inspiration to to learn and grow and beside I think what is important as a manager is to hire the right people uh, direct reports who are inspiration but also the support that you can delegate and create enough space for yourself to be on that strategy level not just on the operational level.
1: Two great ones.
3: So I read uh, and follow, I read uh, analyst reports, follow certain analysts. I spend a lot of time talking with our customers and partners as well, uh, strategic partners. And customers, you learn a lot. Uh, Sometimes it's in between uh, implementations, challenges, and uh, whether it's with data integrity, whether it's uh, the quality of data that's impacting them. That creates a lot of uh, opportunities for me to kind of think, what's the next problem that we will be solving. I read a lot, and uh, podcasts are also great because I spend a lot of time driving somehow, and uh, traffic it's, is it's, back. It's, it's, it's really good. So the podcasts uh, make it easier uh, for that uh, travel. Uh, but uh, networking, uh, I, for example, are, have been attending ESG roundtables with the sea levels to learn more about who is doing what in that space, how we can bring our data governance uh, and uh, data quality products uh, to the uh, market for ESG use cases. So networking has an impact as well.
1: Excellent, thank you, Tendu. Okay,
5: So I've been coding for the past five years and uh, for the past um, couple months, I've been learning AI. And uh, what happened is that the, I have a daughter, uh, is 15 and she wanted to use AI uh, for her school project. And uh, one of her classmates' father, uh, who is an AI engineer, volunteered to teach them, uh, his daughter as well as my daughter. And um, I kind of joined that study group as a student. And it's so fun. And basically I'm competing against my daughter.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What's the competition like in the house, Kay?
5: Um, Well, unfortunately, in terms of time you can spend, I'm losing.
2: (laughs) (laughs) it's a lot easier when you're a full-time
1: student, let's face it, right? Excellent, thank you, Kay. Finally, Ashley.
2: So the good news is I would definitely beat my dad at a coding (laughs) challenge. He's in construction, but all of the above books, love networking. And, and I love the like, kind of like informal dinner, like I f- versus the presentation and the like set topic roundtables, customer conversations. What I found a ton of value in over the past many years is executive coaching, but I changed it when I came to GitLab. So I took my coach who had been my coach for the past few years, and she is now a coach for my entire VP mm-hmm. team. And so what's really valuable there is she's coaching them and this, they're all very thankful they haven't had this in their life and then she coaches me on how to be a better leader for them. Wow. And so that was something new I tried here. That was very much so an experiment that has been working really well.
1: I'm going to steal that idea. Um, thank you so much for sharing your tips. Uh, please join me in saying thank you to our panel this evening. Thank you. So with that, your day is finally over. I'm sure you're all going to go and head to some bar somewhere. But um, uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, well, thank you for sticking around. Um, we hope that their insights was your inspiration. Uh, last thing, if I could ask, there's QR codes on all of your tables. If you could please just spend a couple of moments filling out our surveys. We want to make sure that these forms continue to be useful and impactful for you. So we would really, really greatly appreciate it. And thank you for joining us you know, on this event inside of another event. Uh, we didn't know if this was going to quite work out. Obviously, the, the, the turnout, the engagement, and the networking I've seen that's been going on has been fantastic. So thanks again. Uh, enjoy the rest of your reinvent this week.
0: Thank you for listening to the AWS for Software Companies podcast. For more insights and guidance from the world's leading software executives, subscribe for free to the AWS for Software Companies podcast in your podcast app.